Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 will be in uh, 1 through 16 this morning. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we always put our scripture up on the screen for you. Uh, but we also have Bibles uh, in the seats. We'd love for you to get your hand on a hard copy of God's Word, whether it's your own Bible, one of the Bibles in the seats, or, I don't know, your phone, your iPad. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible back at home, take those in the seats there as our gift to you. And we also have some probably more crisp ones in the back, too. So we would love for you to have a Bible. So grab one of those. Now, last week, we began this journey through the Old Testament historical book of Nehemiah. It's history. It's historical. It's, it's uh, historically verifiable. These are names, dates, places that you can confirm with history. Uh, this is a, a really incredible book. This week, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. I want to fill you in a little bit. 586 BC, the great Babylonian empire comes in uh, to Jerusalem, besieges this this great city, completely destroys it, takes many of the people um, out into exile. And this was just really, really terrible because this is God's city. This is God's city. Uh, Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Zion, named a thousand plus times in the scripture. It was the, the model city, kind of prototyping to the world what it would look like if a people really lived with God at the focus center, if they lived their lives differently, that they worshiped and they, they lived and they did work all centered on the Lord, that their marriages were centered on the Lord. Today we would call this the church. And so we see kind of this prototype for um, God's people, for God's city. Um, and the well-being of Jerusalem was really directly connected to the name and the fame and the credibility of God on the earth. Well, God's people hadn't honored him, and so God allows Babylon to come in to uh, really judge them and to punish them, and just completely destroys Jerusalem. The the walls are down, the gates are burned by fire. It's it's a really, really terrible situation, and the name and the fame and the credibility of God on the earth really directly tied to Jerusalem. It's not looking good. Essentially, God's city is exposed. It's just kind of cut wide open with the gates being down or the walls being down, the gates being burned. Enemies to just kind of come in, do as they please. It was really just a dangerous mess. I mean, it was just not a good place. Total anarchy. It was really a far cry from the holy city, a a city of hope and of peace and of love and of worship centered on the Lord. Now, fast forward 140 years. Now, The Persians have kind of overtaken. They are now the new world uh, superpower. They've absorbed the Babylonian empire. And this guy, Nehemiah here, is kind of born into this mess. In a culture where he has never seen God's city, Jerusalem, thriving. He's never seen God's city as a model city to the world. He's never seen God's city as a hub of worship. He's never seen God's city as a vibrant faith community. He's never seen God's city serve as a city on a hill, a beacon of light to the world. It's much like us today here in Boston. We've we've heard about the great awakenings of the past in New England. We've heard about the history of all these gorgeous church buildings all over littering Boston that are now turned into condos and and schools, even like the one that we're sitting in today. We've heard about the missionaries that were sent out from America, first here in Massachusetts, Salem, and and college missionaries from Mount Hermon and uh, Williamstown, and we've heard about it. We've heard about John Winthrop, who was a founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, who said, Boston, Massachusetts is going to serve for the world as a city on a hill. The eyes of the world will be 
upon us. We've heard about it, but we've never really seen it. And it seems like this, this far cry for us, this idea that, that we could be a city on a hill, that we could be a city of God. It just kind of seems out of reach. And so today what we're going to learn from Nehemiah is how he prays about this and how he pursues this for his city. And we're going to take that example. We're going to follow it for our city and for our faith community and for our lives. There are areas in our own lives that are broken and in disrepair. And so we can apply this on on multiple levels. And so we're going to learn how he prays for that. I wonder, anybody here just got your prayer life together? I mean, just rock solid prayer life? No, not me either. And so we're going we're gonna to learn from Nehemiah. Last week we saw Nehemiah in Susa, the capital city of Persia. We see his brother Hanani comes in with some of their boys and they kind of give him the, the word that, hey, this city is still a mess. And what's strange is that when Nehemiah hears this, the guy just completely loses it. I mean, he just completely breaks down, and not just for a quick moment, not for a day. He breaks down for three to four months of just weeping, praying, fasting. The guy is a mess. Now, what's strange about this is that this is no update. This is no new news. The guy was born into this news. It was 140 years prior when the city was ransacked, besieged, people were exiled, the the gates and the walls were, were torn down. It's the same havoc, we said, same havoc that he's always known about, but it's a different heart. Same havoc, different heart. The God's kind of given Nehemiah the heart of Jerusalem, who 478 years later, Jesus would walk in Holy Week, and he would weep over Jerusalem. Now, here's Nehemiah, kind of a foreshadowing, weeping over Jerusalem. God breaks his heart for the city, and we last week wanted to pray that God would would break our heart. God gave him a lot of faith that God could and would restore and rebuild this city. And so Nehemiah began to pray, and let's watch and learn as Nehemiah prays. Let's actually pick up at chapter 1, verse 1. So if you want to just look a verse ahead. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what he says. Chapter 1, verse 11, rather. He says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, last week we learned some basic facts about Nehemiah. We learned about his brother, what his name was, one of his brothers. We learned about his father's name. We learned about the time period that he was born into, the city of residence. And and we've kind of learned that. But now we learn about his job, that he is cupbearer to the king. And one of the things I love about this book, one of the the greatest aspects of this book, is that it comes from this non-clergy, non-pastoral angle. And that's what we get to receive is a a non-clergy, non-pastoral angle angle. Just, just Nehemiah, a working guy, works for the king. He's cupbearer to the king. You ever notice how the vast majority of Christian literature is written by pastors, right? And so I'm going to dog myself here for a moment. It's what I call the, the Christian catch-22, right? Is the average Christian needs average Christians writing Christian literature about how to live the average Christian life, and, and, and not just from the pastoral perspective, but that average Christian who should be writing these books is too busy working, (laughs) right, and doing what they do. And the people with time on their hands who can actually write these books on the job are the pastors, like myself. So it's kind of this catch-22. And so what do we do? We go to the Bible, and we we look at the Bible, and and in the scriptures, we've got just regular people. We've got shepherds, we've got cupbearers to the king, we've got musicians, we've got 
fishermen, we have tent makers, we've got all kinds of different just regular people working jobs. And Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of, of Persia. And, and through his faithful servant, he has kind of risen the ranks from a, just an average slave to a slave who is now working uh, this very unique job for the king. Basically, Nehemiah's role was to arrange wine for the consumption of the king. And so whenever wine was to be brought before the king of Persia, Nehemiah would be the one to do the research, to pursue it, to, to purchase it. And then he was also the taste tester of the wine. He was the quality control guy. Any quality control people, QCC people in the, the room? And, and, and so here's the deal, though. Persia was the great world power of the day. And so people either loved the king or they just completely hated the king. And so if they wanted to kill the king, a great way that people would opt to do that would be to poison him. And so Nehemiah would taste the wine, kind of a sweet, sweet gig, but if he lived, the wine was clear. But if he died, well, the king probably shouldn't drink the wine. We have a guy in our church, his name is Sam. He served for us in Iraq. Really, really grateful for uh, Sam. And his role in Iraq was basically to catch bullets for the general, who would then become the Joint Chief of Staff. And so he had the privilege of being with the top dog, right, out there in Iraq. But at the same time, there was, his life really was, you know, right on the line. This is Nehemiah. He gets to hang out with the top dogs, but his life is on the line. It kind of seems like a, you know, it was a, it was a cush gig. You know, a lot of wine, a lot of festivities with the king, but really... At any given time, he could be done. He's living with the, the king of the castle. He's probably got his own place right in the caps, castle. But at any given time, sip a wine, and he's done. He's this foreign slave who's kind of risen the ranks from his position as a lowly slave to now being one of the most trusted slaves, the most trusted employees of the king, where the life of the king is in his hands. It tells us a lot about the character of Nehemiah, doesn't it? that he could kind of raise, rise the ranks here. It also tells us that for us, if, that if we would really just be humble and do what, whatever we do in a way that honors the Lord, then God can use that to give us credibility and to give us influence. One of my favorite verses, Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You got it? Whatever you do. That means if you're a pastor, or if you're a plumber, or a teacher, or a mother, or whatever, whatever you do, do it in a way that is in the name of the Lord Jesus, it reflects the Lord Jesus, and you can worship God in your work, and you can reflect God to others in your work, and God can use your skill and your working hard and doing whatever you do for the glory of the Lord to gain credibility and influence, and that's certainly how it works out for Nehemiah. He's working with the king. Coincidence? Let's see how it works out. Let's read on. Nehemiah chapter 2 now, 1 through 2. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, so this is Nehemiah speaking, a journal entry here, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? Sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. All right, so Nehemiah says this. He says it's the, it's the month of Nisan. That's three to four months after he had received the report that Jerusalem is still a mess. We see in chapter one, that was the month of Kislev, and this is the month of Nisan. So three to four months later, and he's been a mess. 
And we see that he's a mess because now he's bringing wine to the king and he looks sad. He says, at this point, I had never been sad before the king before. You see what he's doing here? You see what he's doing here? In front of your boss, what are you going to do? You're going to fake it, right? You're going to put on a smile. You're going to pretend like you love your job. Boss, you're awesome. My job is awesome. I love doing stupid things that you don't want to do for you. I love it. You're awesome. You smile and you just kind of, you just kind of fake it. He says, I've never been sad before the king. I just, you know, I, I just never have been, been sad before the king. But this time, I couldn't pull it together. He says, I just couldn't pull it together. You ever been there? You had to pull it together for work and you just couldn't? You're like, oh, I do. Sick day, right? Personal day. I can't pull it together. I've had a horrible weekend. I had a horrible night. I had a horrible morning. I got dumped. My spouse and I had a fight this morning. My kids were insane. I just, I cannot pull it together. Or sometimes for the sake of the job, you just, you've absolutely got to pull it together. You show up, but you can't hide it. That was Nehemiah. He says, I could not pull it together. The king notices for the first time. He says, Nehemiah, what's up? You're a mess, man. What's going on? He says, this is not sickness. You, you, know, you look bad. Somebody came up to me one time and goes, man, you look terrible. Are you sick? I'm like, actually, I feel great. It was like the biggest, it was the biggest insult of my life. Like, I, don't, I don't know where that came from. I don't know what was on my face, but it was not good. He says, this is not sickness. He says, this is sadness of heart. He's a discerning king. And he was right, right? Nehemiah was broken for his city, for his, his people. He was just broken for his faith community. And so Nehemiah puts here at the end of the verse, he says, and I was very afraid. I was very afraid. Anybody in here ever been afraid of what God's calling you to? God ever said, here's something I want for you. And you're like, oh, oh wow. And, and you're just, you're straight up, afraid. Listen, this is normal. A lot of times we kind of see people who do big things for God and we're like fearless and they're just fearless and then we therefore kind of determine I'm full of fear so I just can't can't do it. No, no. God gives us things that are big and, and, and scary and beyond us so that when he comes through we don't get the credit. He gets the credit. And so it's okay to have something in front of you that's big and scary and hairy, that's totally cool. That's kind of how God tends to work if you want to read through your Bible. Nehemiah was afraid, but it doesn't stop him. Verse 3, here's what he says. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. That's a great way to start it out, isn't it? Let the king live forever. I, I love this. Have you ever had this one pulled on you? You know, your, your girl or your man comes up to you and goes, baby, you know I love you, right? You're like, all right. Give it to me. What are you asking for? <laughs> it means they're about to ask you for something that, you know, you don't want to do. And this is kind of the case here. He says, let the king live forever. And then he kind of goes on with um, uh, kind of a big question here. Verses 3 and 4. Check out 3 and 4. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. And why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. So king, I can't pull it together today. The land of my ancestors lies in ruin. My people are broken. They're hurting. I'm hurting for them and with them. And I love the king's response. What do you want? <laughs> Just straight up, what do you want? 
right? He's not very sensitive. He's that, you know, that boss who just can't, like, sit and, you know, lick your wounds. He's just, what do you want? Give it to me. Tell me what you're asking for. And so he goes on and he says, listen, here's what I do. I pray to the God of heaven. He asked me, what do you want? I pray to the God of heaven. What does Nehemiah do throughout this book? He prays. What are we called to do without ceasing? We're called to pray, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, and pray without ceasing. Now, notice so far from Nehemiah, we've seen two kinds of prayers so far in just the, the intro a couple of weeks in this book. We've seen in chapter 1, um, we see this long, extended, kind of focused in prayer. And then chapter 2 here, we see what I would call just a little shotgun prayer. And, and both are, are appropriate. Both fall under praying without ceasing. In his long, extended, focused prayer, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, Nehemiah pray, prays, he, he prays uh, kind of a uh, methodical prayer. He, he praises God for his faithfulness in his prayer. He compares his personal unfaithfulness to God's faithfulness and compares the two, leads him to then confess his sin. He also, in that prayer, claims the promises of God. He prays some very specific prayer requests, and he even fasted. To show the Lord, hey, I'm serious here. I'm pursuing you deeply. We should pray like this, right? Long, serious, intense, methodical, theological, faithful, uh, confession of sin, claiming the promises of God, fasting. We should pray like this. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the records of the life of Jesus, we see Jesus uh, waking up really early, going to a secluded place to pray. Prioritize prayer. Do it early. Do it often. That's biblical. We must do that. We must be a praying people because God hears the prayers of his people. He hears our prayers. Nehemiah prayed like this intensely, prayed, fasted three to four months. That's the prayer we saw last week. This week here we have this little little shotgun prayer. King says, what do you want? And right there Nehemiah says, God help me. Boom. It's a quick little shotgun prayer. He doesn't say, excuse me king, let me go Consult somebody. Lord, what do I do? No, right in the, the moment, right face to face in that moment, he just says, God help. You ever done this? Talking to somebody, just, God, give me the words. I don't, I don't know what to say. Help, Lord, please help. Lord, protection. I pray prayers like these all the time. See, the other day I was walking uh, down the street to a neighbor and church member's house. It's kind of down and across the street. And I, I, I'm walking down on the sidewalk, the other side of the street, and I hear my boy's scooters coming in the distance. They followed me and started trying to catch up with me. And they're cruising down the sidewalk on the other side of the street on their scooters. And their scooters are kind of noisy. And so when they're, they're rolling on their scooters, they just can't hear when you're, you're talking to them. At least that's what I think. I don't know. And, uh, and as they're doing that, I see them catching up. And I look across the street and one of the neighbors has fired up his car. And he's coming up the driveway pretty fast. And I'm saying, boys, stop, stop, stop. And they couldn't hear me because they were on their scooters and they were just making these loud noises as they're going. And I just quickly said, Lord, please help. And right in that moment, the car slams on its brake just before intersecting with my children. Shotgun prayer. Lord, help. Lord, help. God didn't say, well, you know, Josh, your prayer wasn't theologically driven. Josh, your prayer time didn't have a moment of, confession. Josh, you didn't take some time to prepare your heart for worship. No, I just, Lord help. And God says, done. Right. Shotgun prayer. We need to pray scripture. 
We need to pray prayers of confession. We need to pray prayers of worship. We need to seriously, deeply pursue him, prioritize him. But we also pray always. Pray always. I remember discovering this in college. I'm walking down the halls and learning to pray while I'm just walking from class to class. It was like this magical, massive uh, epiphany in my mind. In college, I was a, a pizza boy. And some of my most powerful moments of prayer were in my car, driving from house to house. I have a stack of pizzas in my passenger seat. I got a pizza light on the top of the car. And inside the car is a college guy passionately pleading with God to reveal his will for my life. Passionately praying to him. Some of the most amazing moments of my life in prayer. Pizza sauce on my shirt. It was a mess. But pursuing the Lord seriously. Also in college, I led this ministry team. We travel up and down the East Coast two to three times a weekend for four years straight, ministering to churches. I was shepherding this team of peers as we would travel, and then simultaneously I was preaching at these churches, probably some of the worst sermons you'd ever hear in your life. I was just learning how to preach by, you know, trial by fire. And so I just didn't know what I was doing. I was in over my head, and so what I would do is periodically I would go deep into the woods and just say, this whole day I'm going to be in the woods, and I'm just going to pray. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to fast. I'm just going to focus in on the Lord. and be me and my Bible and a journal in the woods, and I would just seek after God. And so you have prayers like that that are these long, intense, focused, maybe theologically appropriate confession, all of that kind of prayers. You have these car ride prayers that are like, I, like me in college, and you have these quick little shotgun prayers. They're, they're all needed. Pray without ceasing. Be a people of prayer. And here, Nehemiah throws out this shotgun prayer. The king says, what do you want? And Nehemiah says, help, Lord. I wasn't expecting this conversation. And then God helps him. And in that moment, he lifts up this huge request to the king. Just a massive request. Check it out, verse 5. Check out this request. And I said to the king, after praying, real quick, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So his request, his request is king, I want to go to the homeland. I want to rebuild my city, the city of God. And here's why this request is so huge. If you go back to the left uh, into Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, the previous book in the Jewish Bible, uh, they were one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. We in the Christian Bible split them up. Uh, in Ezra chapter 4, King Artaxerxes, the same king here, issues a decree that there will be no rebuilding. He just says, done, that's, that's my deal, no rebuilding. Yet today, Nehemiah stands before the same king and says, I want you to reverse the decree. What is the number one thing that politicians get beat up over today? Flip-flopping. What's he asking the king Artaxerxes to do? He's saying, I want you to flip-flop here. He's saying, king, you love me, right? I've found favor in your sight. May you live forever. I want you to flip-flop on this issue. I want you to risk your political career for your little buddy slave. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm asking for. Check out the response. Verse 6. And the king said to me, parentheses, the queen sitting beside him, I think that's important, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. All right. All right, man. Art's girl, King Art, his girl sitting right beside him, the queen. 
queen. So he's asking right in front of the, the queen, fellas, let me ask you a little side here. Have you ever been forced to do something that you wouldn't do to impress a girl? Anybody? Yeah? Like, I watched The Notebook, for crying out loud, for my girl. Love makes you do crazy things. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe God in his providence had the queen sitting right here in this moment. And maybe she said, come on, baby, look at him. He looks so sad and crying. Come on. And the king considers it. He says, all right, what's the deal? How, how long you need off? How long you need off? Now, it doesn't say how long right here, but if you skip ahead to chapter 5 and to chapter 13, it tells us 12 years. <laughs> You know, not much. I'm just looking for a 12-year paid vacation. That's cool, right? (laughs) Boldness, right? I mean, this is boldness. I'm going to need 12 years. I'm going to need you to send me out. I want you to pay for the gig. I want you to allow my people to come back. I I, I want uh, my people to be able to worship my God. We're basically against everything that you're against, King. How's that sound? Boldness. I mean, amazing. He was scared. But yet he asked some really big requests of the king. Listen, church, here's the deal. No more wimpy prayers. We don't have a wimpy God. We have a huge God. No more wimpy prayers. Let's go big or go home. It doesn't mean that you don't ask God for kind of the minutia of your life. That's, do that. But let's pray big, audacious prayers. John chapter 14, 13 through 14, here's what Jesus says. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's saying, there are big things that I want to do that are in accordance with my will and my plan that will glorify me, that will bring great glory. And if you ask, I will do it. Listen, let's pray audacious prayers. I don't want to be guilty of not receiving something that God would have given had I only asked. You know what I mean? Like there are things out there that God, he's, I will give the, this to you if you will ask. Not everything, but there are things. And we need to ask for those things. Nehemiah goes big. I need 12-year paid vacation. But wait, there's more. Look at 7 and 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Okay. So he's also saying, okay, 12 years, I also need a royal hall pass so that I can go and, and go forward and I can just say, no, nope, got some letters here. The king's cool with this. this. The king is putting his stamp of approval on this. I can pass freely. The king's name is on this project. I mean, this is craziness. We're going to worship the one true God. The king doesn't worship. And the king's going to say, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on this. He's not finished. He says, and... I need a letter to Asaph, who's the keeper of the king's forest. See, the king had his own lumber yard. He says, and I want you to give me a letter saying, give me timber so that I can build and fortify the temple and so that I can put it for uh, the, the walls. That's a big, massive, stinking request. And he goes, oh yeah, and I need a house. And, just, and a house as well. And pray boldly, right? 
great, boldly, huge request here. How does the king reply? Reply, verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of God was upon me. So the king says, okay, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And he funds much of the project. And that's what I'm talking about. Let him fund it, man. I'll never forget when we were looking for a new facility after having just recently started the church. Year one, we were in a Boston public high school. We were paying $37,000 a year to meet in a school for four hours and set up, tear down, and worship. And one of our finance guys, Peter Scow, and I came to this facility after having recently found it and requested a meeting with uh, the, the director here. And uh, he came in, met with us. We're looking around this place. And it had been a church up until like 71, closed its doors, became a school. And we were praying, God, let us turn it back into worship. And so we're standing in this room meeting. And the director says, well, okay, there is this little Haitian church. have like seven people in it. And they meet in, in a room here in the building. They're paying like $100 per week. How does that sound? And I remember I did everything. Peter and I did everything in our power not to smile, start cracking up laughing, not to hug each other and be like, it's a miracle, and start kissing this man. The king financed the vision. I mean, the guy's like, okay, how about we pay the mortgage and we'll just let you meet here for free? How's that sound? That's pretty much what it was compared to $37,000 a year to $5,200 a year. King financed the vision. Amazing. When my family moved from our four-bedroom apartment to a three-bedroom condo because it's better to own than to rent, generally speaking, that fourth bedroom was the church office in the early days of the church. And uh, we moved into a three-bedroom. My boys were getting older on top of that. So we're downsizing. My boys are running crazy around the house, and I just can't get work done. The church can't kind of function out of the office. And so I just started praying for free office space people around the country be like, so what can we pray for? I said, just pray for free office space. We just got a condo, praise God. We never thought we'd own in the city, but we got that. And now we just need somewhere to do, you know, office stuff. And so one day I'm doing ministry over at Boston's flagship Hope 6 housing development. And one of the leadership ladies says, man, we love this partnership between Charles River Church and us. This is so great. What can we do to keep this going strong? And I said, if it pleases the king or the queen, <laughs> we could use some office space. Done. Right there. We have been praying and preparing and planning. And then in that moment, put on the spot, beautiful partnership that God has given us. And God provides his beautiful partnership for Nehemiah here. And God has all the resources. I mean, it's all his, right? I mean, everything is his. Even if the owner isn't a follower. Everything's his. It's all his. God can be creative when we don't know what's going to happen, and he just, he provides, and he does that. Now, he provides this partnership, funds Nehemiah's vision. Now, read forward with me. Look at 9. We'll just read through 16. King said yes. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter, now the king had sent with me officer, officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and Horonite 
uh, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Pastor Ryan's going to touch on opposition in a few weeks here, and so we'll touch on that a little more. Verse 11. And so I went to Jerusalem and, there was, and was there three days. And then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley uh, gate to the uh, dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up uh, in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. All right. So Nehemiah, he's holding his royal hall pass that the king had provided, and the king had also provided, and now we see officers and horsemen. So it's an 800-mile journey to get back to Jerusalem, funded by who? By a secular king. I mean, that's creative financing. God has the resources. Don't ever not pray for something because it's just out of reach. It's too expensive. Not going to happen. No, pray. I'm not talking go pray for a, a beamer. I'm saying when God's put a vision on your heart, don't say it's too expensive for God. No, do it. Go for it. See what he does. He has the resources. Pray big. Now, he arrives in Jerusalem. In the middle of the night, he, he goes out to inspect the condition of the city. And see what he's doing? He's, he's inspecting the city. He's checking out the condition. And he's planning. And I want to notice something here. I want us to notice that Nehemiah has been both praying and he's also planning. There's lots and lots and lots of prayer, but there's also lots and lots and lots of planning, right? Nehemiah was not, that, that day that he has the conversation with the king, he was not planning on having that conversation with the king. It just kind of happened, but he was planning. He had been planning. He had big plans so that the second the king says, what do you want? He didn't have to say, uh, let me get back to you. I'll tell you what I want. Can I come with me tomorrow? No, right there. Here's what I want. I have been planning. These three to four months that I have been praying, I have also been planning. And he gives the king his plans. He's been planning. And he has this conversation with the king. What do you want? Here's what I want. And had he not been prepared, he might have lost his window of opportunity. What I want us to see is that Nehemiah is both a prayer and a planner. And we must both pray and we must also plan. We studied this a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys, Paul prayed a lot, but he also strategically had some plans. Raise your hand in here if, if you're a type A personality. You know you are type A with me. Let's just do it. Come on. Raise your hand. All right, that's you, right? Type A, you're the high strong, get it done, maybe obsessive compulsive, you love Excel spreadsheets, you love charts, your blood pressure's really high, that's you, right? Type A, that's you. Raise your hand if you're like, I'm type B. Type B, anybody in here? You're type B, laid back, easygoing, uh, sometimes you're artsy, a lot of artsy people who are type B, you're, you know, you're low stress. Raise your hand if I don't know you, I haven't determined that. Raise your hand. That means you're type B, okay? Because <laughs> if you were type A, you would have known, you would have figured it out already, right? If you don't know. So us, us, us type A people, you know, we're, I'm going to get it done, right? I'm, I got to do this. I got plans. Let's plan and execute, right? And the type B people, we're going to pray. 
and oftentimes don't execute and don't, don't really plan, right? So as type A, we tend to forget to pray, and we're just like, got to plan, 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 go, go, go. And it fails, and we're like, what happened? We didn't pray. You didn't ask God to be with this. You didn't run it by God and say, God, is this what you want for me? You're just kind of planning, making charts, and going after it. And type, a, type B people pray, God, move the mountains. But then you, you don't become the answer to your own prayers sometimes, right? We need to do both. And so if you're natural when it comes to prayer, then you need to get some planners all up in your business, right? Some of us need that. You've got to consult somebody. I'm praying for God to help me financially. I'm just, my finances are a mess. Get somebody who is good with creating a budget up in your grill and in your business a little bit. Invite them in. If you're a natural planner, you need to get somebody praying with you, asking you if you're praying or if you're just kind of processing and, and moving forward. This is one of the many reasons why we fully believe in a team approach to ministry. That's why we have what we call reach teams. We don't have, hey, this one person does this ministry. Teams do ministry, right? We have a River Kids team who works with our children. We have people not just in the classrooms. We have Jody's working hard planning and scheduling and writing curriculum. We have, you got to have both, right? And church leadership, you, it rounds out gifts. You just had a pastor who can preach. You need people who can also plan and know numbers. And you need that, right? Team ministry. That's why Paul was about team ministry. We need people who are both prayers and planners, and we need to learn to do both. And so here's where we're at currently as a church. It's been, it's been nearly three years since we started the church. We've seen many people come to faith in Jesus. 50% of our people are people who have come to faith in Jesus. Pretty rare, so be encouraged by that. Our church is growing rapidly. In the summer, when most churches' attendances drop, we grew by 100% and showing no signs of slowing down. Our River Kids classes are completely overflowing. So if you want to plug in and serve, now is the time. And you can be a part of not something that's dying. Please help us revive this thing. It's growing. It's doing awesome. Come be a part of this awesome ministry. But we're running out of space. Right? So we we're going to multiply classrooms and have more classrooms just because we have to. Something like one out of every four women in our church is pregnant right now. <laughs> I mean, my connection group the other day, we sat around and we were going to do prayer requests. We said, all right, what can we be praying for? Pray for me, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Pray for me, I'm also pregnant. I have an announcement to make. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you serious right now? It was insane. I mean, just insane. Pray for my nausea. It's amazing. God is answering our prayers. We said we want to plant a church. One of the big pieces of our vision was we want to be a church that reaches young families. We want to be full of young families. When Boston is full of churches made of just singles, transient people, we want to be both. We want to be both. And, and, and God's answering that prayer. God is moving. He's moving. And so now we've got to We've got to make some plans, and we've got to keep praying. It's like, God, keep breathing on this, but simultaneously planning and figuring out what in the world is next. The room is filling up. What do we do? A few options before us. We really don't know. We're praying. Do we do multiple services in this room? Do we go try to find a bigger place? Do we 
continue 10 a.m. here and 6 p.m. a little further into the city downtown and do a couple different campuses and and I'll preach the same sermon because the work is the prep, not so much the deliverance. I, I don't know. We don't know. But we're asking you to pray. We're, we're asking all of us to, let's pray like never before for God's will to be very, very clear. Let's pray like never before that God would continue to give us some of these Nehemiah stories that we've already shared. We'd see more of those. Here's a building for free. Our church is dying. We're going to close our doors. You want it? Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, I mean, let's pray. Let's pray real seriously and fervently. Some of you, let's, let's fast. Let's, let's go after it. I want to ask you to pray for your church. And some of you, you got some ideas. I was on the phone this week with one of our guys helping me plan. Like, he's got some ideas. We can go look at this facility. We can do this. Let's, let's rise up, use your role, and let's, let's pursue. But let's, let's do it as a church together. Some of you, you have brokenness in your own life. You're just like, that. Jerusalem is my heart. <laughs> Jerusalem is my life. That's the condition of where I'm at right now. And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. That Jesus came to earth. He lived perfectly the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve, because the wage of sin is death. But he didn't deserve to die. He lived perfectly. But he died, because I can't die for you, because I deserve death too. He died, undeserving as our substitution. Theologians of old call it the great exchange. His life for my life. His death for my death. So that though we die, yet we shall live. The restoration is found in trusting in Jesus. So let's pray for restoration in our city, that God would continue to use our church for restoration in our neighborhoods and our cities. That God would also heal people in this room today who are broken because of sin. He wants to do that. It seems beyond you. It seems impossible. God says all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. But you've got to pray. You've got to call out to him. Expect great things. Exercise faith in Jesus. So if that's you today, you've never given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus in this time. He says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's called a guarantee. You will be saved if you call upon the name of the Lord and trust in him. And then, again, church, let's be praying for God's will for this faith community. Father, we love you. We love you. We're so thankful for just the example of prayer that we get from Nehemiah, the example of planning, balance with prayer that we get from Nehemiah. And God, we just so long for our, our, our neighborhoods, our, our city, New England, to be restored, to be repaired, rebuilt, centered on Jesus. God, we just pray that you would use us, your people, for that. And in order for that to happen, Lord, you need to repair broken lives in the room. I pray that people would call out to you in this moment, say yes to Jesus, and receive the gift of life in Christ. And in order for that to happen, for us as a church, we have to continue to pray. So Holy Spirit, remind us to pray, as the scriptures say that you do. Remind us to pray. God, would you answer our prayers? God, as we sing this song of response, I pray that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up, we would just really get a real sense of the hope 
that we have in you, that you are able to do this. And so focus us in in this time of response. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we sing, I want to point your attention to verse 8, if I can. I don't usually do this, but I want to point your attention to verse 8. Back up after the king said yes. Notice what Nehemiah in his account said. He said, the king said yes. The king granted me what I asked for. He says, for the good hand of God was upon me. The king said yes. The mission moves forward. Why? Because the king is awesome. No. Because I'm so smart and such a great leader. No. Because God is awesome. The king said yes because of the good hand of God. And so we worship God. And we have hope in God. We don't have hope in a leader. This Christian celebrity garbage that's out there is ridiculous. Elevating pastors and teachers and people who God does good things as if they're God themselves is ridiculous. He didn't elevate himself. He didn't say, see how great I was? See what I did? And he says, good hand of God did this. And God does amazing things so that his name will be proclaimed among the nations. And so as we sing, let's worship him. Let's reflect on the truths of who he is. And let's just be just filled with hope and faith that he can do what he says he's going to do. So stand and respond with me. Thank you.